Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Matthew Blitner, and to my left is co-host Daniel Green, and to my right is, to, is co-host Walt Bonet. Sorry, we keep hearing our theme song. Uh, our producer didn't check on that. In case you did like our catchy theme song, it was written by Jessica Page DeMary, whose full works are accessible online at jdcompositions.com. For the first time, and the first official time, this is Outside the Studio, and for the next 57 minutes, Please sit back, relax, and enjoy our hot and cold sports takes. We will be joined today by a very popular, very renowned guest in the world of hockey, as he is a longtime beat reporter, currently covering the New York Rangers for Newsday. He's also covered the New York Islanders from time to time, and his name is Colin Stevenson. Colin will be joining us in just a minute. Uh, he was the very first guest when we did this show on Instagram way back at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in March. And we will be going to him in just a moment. Daniel and Walt are going to give their thoughts on the Rangers and Islanders as we get Colin connected. Colin Stevenson is somebody that I've been excited to speak with for a long time. Hey, everyone. This is Daniel Green, and I'm joined, of course, by Matt and Walt. And we are elated that all of you could come here today and join us. Colin Stevenson is a fitting first guest. The Rangers have had a lot of progress since their infamous letter three years ago in which they talked about rebuilding and they've made a lot of progress in that time. They are the youngest team in the league and seem to have a lot to build for. But this should be a defining year for this team as this is the third year under David Quinn. Colin Stevenson is somebody who's been reporting for the Rangers for the last three years and of course he went to the greatest school in the world, my alma mater, St. John's University. Thank you, Daniel, and hello, everyone. This is Walter Bonet, and I'm going to take you across town on a short trip on the Long Island Railroad to the New York Islanders, where we're looking forward to seeing what they can do after an impressive run last season where they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals after bowing out to the Tampa Bay Lightning, the eventual NHL champions. The Islanders had their first scrimmage this Wednesday where they look good and ready to play, although Matthew Barzal, Matthew Barzal was noticeably not on the ice. Rumors are that Barzal and the Islanders are still in contract negotiations. Both sides want to play together. However, the Islanders need to reduce their cap limit, which the cap limit was reduced this season due to COVID. So the Islanders are going to work on lowering the cap space. And the main question is whether the Islanders will look like how they did at the beginning of last season when they ran off a 17-0-2 and mark and then made a deep run in the playoffs, or if they'll look at the remaining 500 team and we'll see. Hopefully, they could play very well in their last season of the Nassau Coliseum. Thank you, Daniel and Walt. Colin, can you hear us? Are you there? <clears throat> I'm good. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Colin, thank you so much for joining us here on Outside the Studio. It's a pleasure, to, as always, to have you as a guest. Uh, we're going to get started here with a Rangers preview. It's now, look, it's year three of the David Quinn era. Uh, we all know about the letter that was sent out uh, when Elaine Vigneault was still the head coach in February 2018. Uh, how has DQ and his staff grown in this time? And is this really a make-or-break year for the staff, considering that, you know, the average hockey coaching schedule there, this it's cyclical, and, you know, generally five years is about it, so he's now at the 60% mark. <laughs> well, I think he has a five-year contract, right? So I think, uh, look, yes, uh, under normal circumstances, I, I would think that year three would be a huge year, but... 
Um, I'm not prepared to, to say that just yet. Um, if you look at the Rangers, uh, yes, they, they, you know, they do look encouraging and you're right. You talk about the letter and the rebuild and, and all of that. Um, but they had the youngest team in the league, uh, last season. Right. And, you know, we don't know yet <clears throat> if they'll do that again this season, but if you look at who they lost, I mean, Henrik Lundqvist was 38. Mark uh, Mark Stahl was 33, and then you're bringing in 19-year-old Alexi Lafreniere. So um, my suspicion is they're probably going to be the youngest team in the league again this year, or one of the. Um, <clears throat> and yes, uh, you know, you, you, it's 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 easy for Ranger fans to get excited with Lafreniere coming into the lineup with Capo Caco. Um, you know, in his second year, he looked really good in in that. In that July training camp they had when, you know, when they were preparing to return to play in the Toronto bubble. And I think he played well up there. Um, so I think people are, are eager to see him take the next step. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm about the young kids, Keandre Miller, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, you know, you know, a lot of people want to see what this guy can do. Uh, he's a, a 20 year old, um, rookie, uh, 2018 first round pick. So one of the first round picks that they had, they had three first rounders in, in the 2018 year uh, after, after sending that letter out. So, I mean, Keandre in, in some uh, ways is one of those guys that's kind of one of the building blocks of the rebuild. All right. So, um, so all of that said um, leads me to the conclusion that no, I don't think this is necessarily a break or a make or break year for David Quinn and the staff. I think they still have a lot of young guys. I think they've made a lot of progress. They made progress certainly from year one to year two. Um, you have to see, you know, what kind of progress they make going from year two to year three, but you know, this is a weird year. It's a coronavirus uh, year. It's a compressed season of 56 games in 116 days uh, intra-divisional play only. Um, six out of the eight teams in this division made it to the 24 in, in, uh, in the summer. It's clearly the toughest division in hockey right now. So I don't think you can say, hey, if this guy doesn't make the playoffs, it's time to move on. Uh, I don't think you can do that. I think, you know, uh, it's, it's still a team that is coming out of a rebuild. I expect big things from them. I expect them to have a lot of good moments. Um, but I wouldn't put that kind of pressure on him yet. No, I wouldn't. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, of course, about some of the young players and the need to have this rebuild going. And, of course, the absence now of Henrik Lundqvist, who was bought out a few months ago at this point. And he's, for lack of a better word, being replaced by Igor Shesterkin and Alexander Georgiev. And I know Daniel here has been dying to ask you about your thoughts <laughs> on these two players. Colin, it's well, Dan. Uh, go ahead, Daniel. What, what, what do you got? What, 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 do you... what I want to ask you about is about the comments that David Quinn made, and the team has seemed to want a two-goalie approach to a degree, but, you know, Shesterskin looked really good last year, so how do you interpret how they'll break up the playing time? What do you, what do you see as the strategy that they're going to have? Well, I, I think they're going to probably want to give guys a little bit of runs, right? I think they're, I don't want to say they're going to play the hot hand all the time, but every game's important, right? We talk about intra-divisional only. So literally every game is a four-point game. Um, 
you know, you win in regulation, you get two points and you leave the other team with zero points. So that's a four point game. It's two you get and two they don't get. Um, and, you know, so I don't think you can play around with these games. You know, it's, it's one of the things that actually Islanders coach Barry Trotz pointed out and, and put it very, you know, succinctly. He said, you know, I mean, he's got a young goalie, a young Russian goalie, uh, himself as you as you guys well know and and he was like look you know in a normal setting you know maybe you play the you know varlamov in the divisional games and then maybe you play sorokin in the non-divisional games you know you're going out west and you give him some you know give him some games against some teams that aren't four-point games but you can't do that this year right i mean everything's a four-point game so you're just gonna you know whoever who are you gonna play him against you're gonna pick him you're gonna you're gonna play Gorgiev against Ottawa and, and New Jersey and, uh, you know, um, and, and play Shostarkin against everybody else? No. Um, you're going to need two goalies. That said, they're not going to alternate. I mean, I think uh, Shostarkin plays and plays well uh, and you don't have a game for, you know, until two nights later. There's no reason to not put him back in there. As, the, as, as every coach has pointed out, this division is going to have like the least travel in, uh, you know, of any hockey uh, team has had in, you know, since the old six team league. Right. I mean, you're talking about Rangers and Islanders and devils right all here in the New York metropolitan area. You're talking Philly two hours down the road by, you know, by car, you know, if you take the train, it's less than that probably. Right. So you're looking at Boston and Washington and, you know, and the furthest you got to go is Pittsburgh and Buffalo. So, uh, and both of those are like a one hour flight. So, you know, the travel is going to be easy and there's no reason not to ride a guy if you feel like he's hot. So no, they're not going to, they're not going to split time 50, 50, um, I think I think that they're you know the 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 coaching staff is going to go with the guy that they feel gives them the best chance to win on a given night, and that'll that'll be based on who's playing well, uh, and who's rested, and uh, and what kind of shape the opponent's in. And so there's a lot of factors to consider. But at the end of the day, you know the the short answer to to the question you're asking me is they're not going to play 28 games apiece. I, I would I would expect expect Shisterkin will play more, but I, you know, I don't think he's going to play fifty, and the other guy plays six. Um, I don't play, you know, uh, I think he's going to play a little bit more. And and it very well could be uh, maybe like a forty to sixteen, or maybe thirty-eight games for Shisterkin in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know about that, but I mean, you know, let's say thirty-three, and you know, and whatever, right? What is that? Thirty-three and twenty-three. Something like Something that. Like that. You, you know I'm yeah. not very good at math on this. That's why I'm a, a broadcaster here and a writer. <laughs> um, we're going to now turn to Walt here. Who, he's been, he had a question here about the team leadership that I know a lot of fans are really dying to find out exactly what's going on with this, going on multiple seasons without uh, an anointed leader. Hey, Colin, this is Walt, and I'm very curious to know what your prediction is for the captaincy. Do you think Quinn will shy away from it, or do you think someone like Mika or Kreider might be designated the captain? I don't know if you need my prediction. I don't know. I think it's it's certainly is one of those two guys, if at all, right? Um, and I think uh, if it was gonna be if it was gonna be Mika, you certainly wouldn't announce it. You know that Mika is the captain, and then he's not practicing because of you know um, he's unavailable because of reasons that they can't tell us, right? You would wait until he's around, and then he could comment on it. So I, I don't, I don't. Uh, I don't put a whole lot of emphasis into the fact that they haven't 
um, announced a captain yet. Uh, it's clearly going to be one of those two guys. If if it were up to me, I would uh, I would make it be uh, Mika because he's the best player on the team, um, and uh, he's the right age and. Um, and I, you know, and I, and I think, uh, I think that carries a lot of weight. Um, but I would be okay with, uh, with, uh, you know, Kreider as well. I mean, Kreider is a guy that takes personal responsibility. He's the longest serving member on the team now. I mean, he's, he's the, he's been there the longest. So, I mean, I, you know, I could, I could go with either one. I, you know, if it were my preference, I would give it to Mika, but you know, I think they, you know, I, I would be okay with either one. Uh, and I, I really couldn't predict and, and let you know what they're going to do. I just think that it would have been bad for him to name Mika the captain, and then he's not here and not available to, to speak about that for the first X number of days of camp. And absolutely, you know, his absence has been something that is, of course, being talked about as, of course, the best player on the team. And it's something that we're probably not going to understand why he's missing until maybe Mita himself comes out and says something, possibly after the season when he's on one of his DJ tours, if he's going to do that this year. Uh, we want to turn our attention right now to a couple of the young kids who, of course, you mentioned before. And that's Alexis Lafreniere, the number one pick, uh, Capotato, who was the number two pick last year. And I don't want to call him a surprise because you did say that he was a number one pick a couple of years ago in Keandre Miller. But it really seems that the three of them could almost form a bit of the new nucleus for the team uh, on their importance uh, in their positions as well as to just the amount of talent that they have. Well, I mean, yeah, you could say that, but I mean, I think it's a team, right? I mean, there's a lot of talent now. There's a lot of young talent. You know, you can't necessarily. I mean, Keandre's literally not played a shift in the, in you know of professional hockey. You know, he's not one of these guys that you know finished his college season and then got a chance to go play a couple of games in Hartford at the end of last season before coming into training camp. Like he literally has not played a shift of professional hockey. He's, he's, you know, he really stood out in that, um, July, you know, return to play camp, uh, and kind of opened some eyes. Um, and that was important quite frankly, because I don't think he had the best year. His sophomore year at Wisconsin wasn't so great. He wasn't good in last year's World Juniors. I mean, he was actually not good at all in the, in the World Juniors last year and had a bad year at, at Wisconsin. And so I don't know what the expectations were for him coming into into that July return to play camp, but he showed up, boy, and he uh, he really balled out. I mean, he was he was really, really good, trust me. And, and he's been good. Um, you know, in four days or what is it? It's four days on ice, uh, this week in, in the camp and he's been really good. Uh, and he's clearly made an impression on David Quinn. Um, we, you know, after their first, their, their quote unquote game scrimmage, which all that was, was a night scrimmage where they were, they were wearing, uh, you know, um, game uniforms. Um, but it's the best they can do, right? There's no actual preseason games. So, um, you know, we asked Quinn, you know, the standard question of, you know, did anybody jump out to you? And, you know, you know, he mentioned two names and, and uh, one was Pavel Buchnevich, who scored on a penalty shot. Uh, and the other was, you know, was Keandre. And he he really went on and on and on about how great Keandre was. So clearly, you know, Keandre has caught the attention of the head coach. So, you know. I mean, that's a good sign for him, uh, and uh, and we'll see, you know, what that translates to. I mean, 
season opener on January 14th. I mean, you know, as of right now, if I was a betting man, I would say Keandre is going to be in the lineup that night. Um, but in terms of looking ahead and saying, you know, this guy is going to be the anchor of the team and stuff, you know, let's not forget that Adam Fox is on this team. You know, um, let's not forget, um, you know, a, a guy like Kako, who, um, you know, you mentioned as, as that triumvirate. But don't don't sleep on Philip Hedel. I mean, he had a goal in, in that scrimmage as well. Um, he's a guy who's gotten better in each of his first two seasons. I mean, uh, he was clearly a wide eyed youngster when he first came in. He looked a lot better in his second year. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he's poised, I think, to to you know, to really take a next step. I mean, I think that they, uh, they think he could be the number two center, you know, he's going to be the number three to start off. But if you look at the fact that, you know, where the lines are currently constituted, number three means he gets to play with Lafreniere. So, I mean, there's an opportunity there, you know, if, if you're the third line and you're playing with Lafreniere and you're out there against somebody's third defense pair, you know, you got a chance to do some damage, right? So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't just leave it at Kako and Lafreniere and, and Keandre and say that's it. You know, you've got Fox, you've got Heedle in there, you know, you've got Ryan Lindgren, who's who's a tough as nails guy, and you got guys coming. I mean, they, they didn't bring um Vitali Kravtsov to, to training camp this time because he's playing well in Russia and they decided to leave well enough alone. Uh, they'll bring him over after the Russian season, the KHL season's over, and I'm really, really intrigued to see what this guy's going to do because he's he's having a really nice season in the KHL right now. So there's a lot of talent there, and there's some more talent coming. I've read a lot and heard a lot about Niels Lundqvist, who's uh, you know in Sweden on the final year of his contract. I mean, he's another guy who could come over after the Swedish season ends. So I mean, there's you know, the future, the future, the best days for the Rangers are not now, but they're still ahead of them. Uh, it's just that the future looks like it, you know, might be getting here a little bit sooner than, you know, you might have thought. In terms of the Rangers, they're in a really interesting spot. And a lot of what you've discussed is the uncertainty that surrounds the team, both with the youth and with COVID. Current projections from a lot of different sources, including, you know, the Athletic, Vegas, they have the Rangers finishing about sixth in the division. Do you see the team doing outperforming that? Do you do you feel like there is a chance for this team to be a possible playoff contender? I do. I do actually. Um, you know, I listen. It's it's hard. You know, you look at who else is in the division, and you say Boston was one of the top teams in the league last year, and um, you know Philadelphia and and Pittsburgh and and all these teams, but. Um, you know, if you look at what's going on with Boston, uh, you know, they just lost, you know, Zidane, or let Zidane Charles leave. So, you know, there's a transition there. Whenever you let a big guy like that go, there's there's something of a transition. Um, so, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not so sure that they're going to be as good this season as they were last season. Now, does that mean that they're not a playoff team? No, certainly not. That's not what I'm saying. But if you look at some of these other teams, if you look at Pittsburgh, for instance, Pittsburgh got bounced in the in the preliminary round in the return to play, right? Uh, they lost to Montreal, which was the last team in. Um, the year before, they got swept by the Islanders in the first round. Um, they're aging. You know, they have those two guys, you know, Crosby and Malkin, who, um, you know, I love both of those guys. Those guys are tremendous, but um, they're not as young as they used to be. 
right? And if you look at the rest of the team around them, I don't know that their supporting cast is as good as it used to be, right? So I don't know. I have questions about some of these teams. I have questions about Pittsburgh. I have questions about Washington. Washington, you know, let Braden Holtby go because they thought it was time to let him go, and then they've got this this young cat, Ilya Samsonov, that they think is ready, and then they sign Henrik Lundqvist to, to be a backup and a mentor to him, and what happens? Henrik Lundqvist has open-heart surgery and can't can't serve in that role, so now they're scrambling to find a second goalie to partner with Samsonov, you know, and, and you know, so that's an issue. Um, and they, you know, they do bring in Zidane Chara, which, which is nice, uh, for them, um, sort of gives them the, the veteran presence that they, I guess they were looking for in Lundqvist that they now don't have. So, but, but I think there's questions on, on all these other teams, right? Washington also got bounced by the Islanders and didn't look good doing it, right? So, um, I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling that the Rangers, are better than the sixth best team in that division. And I do think that they have a chance to make the playoffs. New York. You know, am I predicting it? No, I'm not necessarily predicting it yet. Um, but, but I do think they have a very good chance of doing that. And look, New Yorkers, of course, hope that the Rangers, of course, finish better than sixth and do indeed make the playoffs and end what has fast become yet another Stanley Cup drought. Uh, the team across the way, though, on the Long Island Railroad, as Walt mentioned, is the Islanders, and they at least did go to the Eastern Conference Final, and there's a big, big question about one of their star players right now. So, Walt, why don't you ask Colin what you've been eyeing over for the last 20 minutes? (laughs) Hey, Colin, we need to know, should Islanders fans be concerned about Matthew Barzal? Do we think they can get a long-term deal done, or should we be concerned? Uh, I think you should be concerned. Yes, I do think you should be concerned. But, ultimately, I do expect them to get a deal done, because... You know, what are his options? What are everybody's options, right? I mean, the the options are, I don't know that he has an option. I mean, it's, it's in, in this kind of world, I mean, it's tough enough for restricted free agents to just kind of leave and go someplace else and get paid somewhere else. Um, that's not an option. But in also in the, in the post-COVID-19 um, you know, world that we live in, I don't know that you can get big money now. I don't know that you can go to a team and say I'm worth nine million a year or whatever, or ten million a year or something like that. So I, I think, you know, uh, Matthew and his representatives are 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 going to ultimately um, come down to some kind of a bridge deal, two years, three years, um, and they're going to take less money than they feel that he's worth, and they're going to hope that they can make it up in the next contract. Um, Ultimately, that's the only way that this can play out. I mean, what's he going to do? Sit out the year? I don't. I don't see that. Now, the issue that I would have as an Islander fan is: okay, you have ten days of training camp, right? We've missed four days already. Um, your season opener is literally a week from yesterday, as we speak. Um, so it's it's six days away. Um, he's going to come in, he's going to get on the ice, he's going to skate a couple times. Um, and, you know, with 56 games in 116 days, you got to be ready to go on day one. You know what I mean? You're opening up against the Rangers in the garden. Um, I know there's not going to be any fans there, so maybe that'll, you know, maybe the atmosphere won't come into play as much. But it's still a big game. It's still a four-point game. It's still your arch rival. I would like Matthew Barzal, if I'm an Islander fan, to be in the lineup 
be in the middle of that first line and be ready to go. And, you know, does he need all 10 days? Uh, no, I'm sure he's skating on his own and he's getting ready and, you know, and I'm sure he, he's done all his prep work and he's a good player and he's a young guy. So I don't think it'll take him too, too long to get up to speed. But listen, if you fritter away points, if you throw away points now in the first two games or the first four games or the first 10 games, you know, those points could be valuable, you know, points that, that you might need, you know, when the season is coming to an end in, in, in the beginning of May. So, yeah, that would be the concern is is not so much that I, I think he might not play, but the question is, when's he going to sign? When's he going to get in? Um, and, and is he going to be, you know, full speed ready to go on day one? Well, as you mentioned, Colin, he, you know, of course, Ireland fans want him in the lineup always, but especially against the Rangers, considering how he tortures the team on a seemingly game-by-game basis whenever he plays against them, whether it be at the Darden, Barclays Center, the Coliseum, wherever it is. We have one final question for you here, and it's going to be, building off of what the Islanders did last season, going to the Eastern Conference Final and before falling to Tampa, can this team become the Stanley Cup winner this year are they a legitimate threat to do so and if not where do you picture them finishing if they don't go all the way well uh that is an interesting interesting question um in the way i see the islanders uh the way they're constructed can they win the stanley cup i don't know if they have enough firepower to win the stanley cup i think they went as far um, in this restart as as I would expect that they're capable of going. I think going to the Eastern Conference Finals is, 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 a, is, a, is a really good achievement for this team because, you know, they don't, you know, Matthew Barzell, I like him a lot. He's a good player. I don't know if he's, you know, in in that, that conversation with the Connor McDavid's and, um, and the Nikita Kucherov's of the world. Although Kucherov, I guess, isn't, isn't playing. I don't know what the story is with him necessarily. Um, so uh, he's a really good player, but he's still only 23. Um, I, I don't know if he's as good as Mika Zibanejad. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's as good as um, some of these other guys right now, which is not to say that he's not going to be that in two or three years. I mean, Zibanejad now at, at age 26 you know, he's been common. I mean, and Ranger fans have seen this since the day he got here. He's gotten better and better every year. So, I mean, that's possible with with a guy like Barzal. I don't know if he's if he's um, the type of guy that can carry them to a Stanley Cup just yet. But I will say this for the Islanders. They are constructed for the playoffs, right? They are built for the playoffs. If you look at that fourth line that they have, um, and the trouble that those guys cause people. And if you look at a guy like uh, Beauvillier and a guy like Pajot, I mean, those guys score big, huge goals. And that's what you need, right? Um, if you look at the performance they got out of Varlamov in the goal, uh, in the bubble, uh, in the Toronto and Edmonton bubbles, um, you know, they have good goaltending. Um, Pelik and Pulak are a nice first first defense pair. Uh, so they have good defense. They've got an excellent coach, um, and they're tough. So I think that they are really built for the playoffs. Um, the question is always in the NHL is that you have to make the playoffs, and especially now in in, in this sort of you know steel cage match uh, that they're going to be in. Um, 
you know, we're only the four teams. It's not the best eight teams in the conference. It's the best four teams in this division. And you could be, you know, you could be the fifth best team in the league. If the top four are in your division, you know, you're out of luck. So, um, yes, I think the Islanders are built for the playoffs, but they have to get to the playoffs. And they're going to need luck to do that to some degree. Um, and you're going to need people to perform on a nightly basis. Uh, and we'll see. Um, could they win the Stanley Cup? Yes, I think they could. I, I wouldn't favor them to do it. I would favor, actually, in a, in a setting like this, I would favor some somebody, you know, somebody asked Andrew, Andrew Gross, our Islanders writer for Newsday, on one of the podcasts that I did with him asked me who I thought and he kind of caught me off guard, but, but the, the name that popped into my head was Colorado. I mean, a team like that, you know, they're loaded. Um, and they should kind of just kind of cruise into the, in, into the postseason. I mean, they shouldn't have to like sweat and bang and beat people up every night over 116 nights just to get there. So I think that they'll be fresher when they get there, you know? And so that's, that's why I would say a team like that probably would have an advantage uh, if if I'm if I'm picking a team to win the cup, you know, uh, you know the the Islanders, I figure, uh, you know, yeah, they they they're built to to succeed in the playoffs, but you got to get there and you got to get through this this division that they're in in order to get there. And who knows what kind of health they'll have? And you know, you know, they're a team that if you know if you get a guy like, uh, you know, we saw it last year, you get a guy like Clutterbuck miss time, and that that affects their whole team you get it you know any guy off that team that's missing you know is gonna be a problem so um i wouldn't i wouldn't bet the house on them well thank you for that wonderful synopsis talon uh as always it's been a pleasure talking to you ladies and gentlemen we've just been talking for the last uh 25 minutes with talon stevenson newsday new york rangers beat writer uh talon thank you so much for being part of this historic first show and we, we hope to uh, chat with you again soon. Well, I tell you what, you know, I, I really appreciate you giving me the chance to be on the first show. Um, you know, you're a good guy, uh, Matt. And uh, uh, anytime uh, you want to, you know, want to do this again, just let me know. I'm, I'm here for you. Will do. Thank you. Best to you and your family. And we'll talk to you later, Colin. Okay, man. All right, bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, again, that was Colin Stevenson giving us the Metro Rangers and Islanders roundup in the NHL. We're going to move right now into our MLB segment. Of course, the big news yesterday was the Mets making a trade with the Cleveland Indians. And it's such an exciting thing that, as a Yankee fan, it almost makes me want to puke. So I'm going to turn it over to the Mets fan, Walt, here, to tell you exactly what that trade was. Thank you, Matt. And it is now a great, great week to be a Mets fan where Steve Cohen finally came through on his promise to spend the big bucks and came through on a blockbuster deal where the Mets signed Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco from the Cleveland Indians and only had to give up Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario, whereas I always liked Ahmed Rosario, but he did not come through this the last few years as he was supposed to. So this is an incredible deal for the Mets, showing that they plan to be a World Series contender this year. And if anything, I feel bad for the NL East. I, I just want to uh, call out some of my fellow radio hosts, uh, Mr. Matthew Blitner. Oh, Matthew no. Blitner, last week on the show, went on a whole spiel about Steve Cohen's here and he's talking a lot on Twitter, but he's not getting things done. And uh, the Mets fans, we said, we trust in Steve Cohen. We've been through a history of poor ownership and poor decisions. So 
even just having him in there is such a big deal, and now you see why. Steve Cohen and team were very adamant, we're going to get the right guys in here. Francisco Lindor is a top five player, right? I mean, I wouldn't. Would you argue with that? He's a top five shortstop, top 15 player. That's not that, okay. That's reasonable. I was being, I was, I was maybe being a little bit extreme, but still, he's 27. He's a switch hitting shortstop. I mean, the sky is the limit with this guy. And a lot of times, if the deal was just for Carrasco, that would have been enough of a story. That would have been a big story. I mean, he's somebody who has been a good pitcher for a while and has faced a lot of adversity, as we all know about the leukemia diagnosis. And he's, I wouldn't call him a throw in in this deal. And Obviously, Lindor is the one who's getting the highlights, but the Mets managed to get two difference makers on this team without giving up their top prospects. I mean, that's crazy. Listen to me. I've been a Mets fan for a long time, so I know these things can go sideways, but also I've been a Mets fan. That's way too true. It's way too true, but I've also been a Mets fan for a long time, and I can't think of a deal where I was this excited. Walt, can you think of a deal where you've been this excited? This is the best preseason signing that the Mets have had since Johan Santana years ago back. Preseason signing? I thought Johan was a trade Walt. Johan was a preseason signing. I'm uh, fairly certain they traded for, for him from the Twins, but no, okay. Cespedes was a midseason signing, but Francisco Lindor is arguably a bigger signing than that. Francisco Lindor is probably the biggest signing than anyone other than Mike Piazza if you want to get technical about it. And even look at our lineup now. We're going to have... Jacob DeGrom, one of the best pitchers in the MLB starting, that we're going to have Carlos Carrasco next, and then Marcus Stroman, and then Syndergaard's probably going to be back this season. We're going to have the best pitching in the NL East. Second half of the season, Syndergaard back. They're let's, saying let's not June. Get ahead of Wait, they're here. saying June, Matt, to be fair. To, to be fair, we all know coming back from Tommy John surgery is a lot more difficult than what the initial prognosis is. But even without Syndergaard, I mean, this is a team that has... A, a good starting staff without him. And now he's going to be coming back into the second half of the season. By the way, a lot of guys come back stronger off Tommy John. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but it's something to consider about this team really having a strong rotation. Now, I will say, I'm really not looking forward to, if they disappoint me, Matt playing back this clip. I'm really not. I've already, I've already got the drop bit. recorded. I already have the drop recorded for the I told you so. I'm going to play for the both of you when the Mets, when it blows up in their faces and they don't make it anywhere this year. Uh, believe me. And I know my grandfather up in heaven is staring down at me saying, how dare I talk bad about the Mets. But I cannot in any conscious good faith say that. I think the Mets are going to go anywhere with this. I'll tell you right now, the Mets are going far for one reason, and that's Jared Porter, part of the Theo Epstein camp. He knows how to win, and he knows how to take a bad team and make them win. Well, we'll see what happens there. Of course, the Mets are currently talking with Theo Epstein's former team, the Chicago Tubs, about potentially getting Chris Bryant as well, in which case I might be eating my words here, and I'm sure you guys will have some drops prepared for me if and when that happens. We're going to move right now into our NBA roundup because we are more that we are a four-sport city here, if you think about it. In New York City, we care about our hockey, our baseball, our football, our basketball. We've got a lot going on here. It's good to see that we are a four-sport city again because, uh, you know, there was a while where it was kind of like, let's pretend basketball doesn't exist. And look, basketball, we know that New York has always been called a Knicks town. Uh, Walt, I know you are a Nets fan. Nets are currently playing in my home borough of Brooklyn, so we would be remiss to not start with them. They are currently 5-4 and four on the season. They just won yesterday 122-109, to 109, and they did it without Tyree Irving, who pulled himself from the lineup roughly an hour and a half before game time for personal reasons. We don't quite know what those are yet, but it's Kyrie Irving, so... 
it's sure to be something that will get a lot of people talking when he does reveal it, if he ever does. They did it without Kevin Durant, who has been in COVID protocol. He did not have COVID. He was exposed to someone. He was deemed high risk. But as long as he continues to test negative, which he has, thankfully, he should be back in lineup around Sunday. Uh, Walt, I know you are very high on some of their bench players as well as a potential sixth man of the year. So why don't you give us your Nets roundup for you as you're the only Nets fan out of this trio. Matt, like any New Yorker, or any Brooklyner, as we like to say. Brooklyn Knight, not Brooklyner. Let's get it right here. I know you're from Queens, but let's, do, let's get the terminologies right. You can tell Walt just moved to Brooklyn like two years ago. As the native expert Brooklyn Heights resident, I will say the Nets bench is electric. The Nets looked incredible. Karis Levert, sixth man of the year, had 22 points and 10 assists against the Sixers. Joe Harris, 28 points, and Jared Allen... 15 points and 11 rebounds. And I will say Jared Allen looks incredible in the paint. The 76ers are one of the best teams down low in the East. And Jared Allen held up and very confident about this bench team. It, it, it breaks an interesting question is what I will say is you look at this team and you look at how deep they are. And you say to yourself, well, there was no KD. There was no Kyrie. So when those guys come back, this team is going to take off. I... I'm starting to, to hear the whispers, and I'm starting to wonder, is this team better when they don't have that star power? Is there more chemistry? Is it a team that um, turns the ball over less? It's, it, it's too early. The thing is, it's too early to say this, but I'm starting a little bit of the whispers now. And look, it's something about the chemistry. We all know that that's the one thing that you can't count on. You can't predict in sports, whether it be basketball or any other sport. And one thing that could potentially cause a rift. Uh, it's been spoken about on multiple sports talk radio and TV shows lately. Yes, when KD and Tyree come back, along with DJ, uh, DeAndre Jordan, they have a terrific bid three. But new first-year head coach Steve Nash is playing Jarrett Allen over DJ a bit. And let's not forget that that cost the previous coach, Kenny Atkinson, his job as one of the reasons. There were other reasons why the, why Atkinson got fired, but it's been well documented that the players did not like the fact that Allen was getting playing time over DJ. So, Matt, they if, didn't if like that it. happens, again, I have to wonder if Matt, they didn't, tenure Matt, might Matt, be one Matt. and done. They didn't like the fact that they were losing. Like, you look at the way that Jared Allen played last night, and Embiid's a premier player. So the fact that he was able to really be a part of a defensive effort that limited him and the fact that the Nets really showed something he's you know scored 15 points got 11 rebounds he's he's somebody who's been a part of this team and been a key when they're winning that's the ultimate thing that's going to carry through regardless of these little rumors or well they didn't play this guy if the team is winning the pride is going to be overcome and look, the pride is, of course, a big thing uh, in basketball players and any professional athlete. They have, you know, it's all about ego and minimizing the ego for the maximum good of the team. And one of those teams that is minimizing their ego, shockingly enough, not that they should have an ego considering their track record for the last 20-something years, is the New York Knicks. And the Knicks, who play at the world's most famous arena, just last night beat the Utah Jazz 112-110 to after an 18-point deficit. Julius Randle, I, 
I don't even know what to continue to say about the guy. He had 30 points, 16 rebounds, 7 assists, and Randall has quickly gone from why did they get him and, oh, well, maybe he's just going to rehab his market value to he might be an actual building block for this team now, and if he does continue to do what he's doing right now, it gives the Knicks yet another player that they can potentially build a championship nucleus from, and boy, has it been a long time since you've been able to say something like that about the New York Knicks, who are shockingly above 500 eight games into the season. Matt, the Knicks had a low, low bar this season. I would Low say, bar or not, it's still exciting when they win games. They have crushed that bar. Their bar this season was to just show that they weren't a toxic culture, and right now, they are looking incredible. Their defense looks amazing. Julius Randle is a star. And let's not forget Austin Rivers, who scored 14 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. What you're seeing here as a Knicks fan that you haven't seen in a long time is guys buying in. You're seeing everybody doing their job. A number of different guys are making an impact. Yes, Julius Randle is a talented guy who seems to be playing great. He's not going to keep this up. But what I'm impressed with is everybody seems to be accepting their role. Even a guy like Alfred Payton, who... In, he's not somebody who has always done that. He's somebody who I, I've seen accepting his role. This uh, offense, fourth in passing percentage. That's a big stat. That means they're not they're not predictable to get, play against. There's somebody who you have to think about. You have to get creative defensively if a team's going to be fourth in passing percentage. So there's a lot of hope just about the culture. Now, I don't know that they're going to exceed you know, all expectations forever, but, again, it's about the building. It's about the process for this season. And th- this season, of course, the you guys have mentioned the culture and changing the culture. There's no one you can give credit to more than Tom Thibodeau, the head coach. Let's be fair here. He has really come in and almost overnight got rid of whatever toxic culture there was surrounding the Nets. And, you know, Leon Rose, of course, kudos to him for giving Thibodeau the reign to do things that he's doing. And they just signed Taj Gibson yesterday. So Thibodeau's got yet another person who knows him, who he knows that they can really start to gel and maybe they don't go, you know, maybe this isn't quite the next year yet. Of course, we're not saying that. It's going to be quite a while before that is actually the case. But there's enthusiasm about this team that there hasn't been outside of their one playoff run about eight years ago. There really hasn't been this enthusiasm in a really long time. And Walt, I defy you because I know you're looking at me right now like, what is he on? I defy you to dampen the spirit of Knicks fans everywhere right now. My good friend, Tom Tibbs, completely transformed the He's series. your good friend? I wasn't aware that you guys were talking or texting. Is that who you were texting over there? I thought My- you were texting your girlfriend instead. My good friend Tom Tibbs, who we text all the time, transformed this defense into one of the top five most efficient defenses in the NBA. This is coming from last season, where the Knicks had one of the worst defenses in the NBA. And this is without Obi Tobin. This is without Mitchell Robinson, who hasn't turned on his switch at the moment. Same with RJ Barrett. So once all these players come together and play very well, honestly, I don't want to say it. I don't want you to ding me later, but this is a playoff team. Oh, you're getting dinged later, and they could be a playoff team. I'm hoping, you know, maybe the seventh or the eighth seed. We'll see. Daniel, do you have any last comments on the Knicks before we move to our exciting college football segment? I think the last thing that we need to talk about with the Knicks is the the differences that have really come up in the character of the team, in the culture of the team. This is a team that has shown resiliency. When you're down by 18 in the second quarter against the Jazz, 
I'm, I'm going to be honest. I was like, okay, we didn't win this one. I mean, that makes sense. Sometimes, you know, we've been playing well, but, you know, this isn't our night. And then they took it back. And you want to talk about somebody who has really bought in? Austin Rivers is a guy who has not always shown up, but he has really accepted his role on this team and really been somebody who has been a good role player. I could go through the gamut with these guys. And look, this is the funny thing about it. Obviously, if guys continue to play this way, like Walt said, this is a potential playoff team. And whatever it is, I cannot wait to continue to watch throughout the season. Ladies and gentlemen, we've now taken you through our major sports here with the exception of the NFL. But look, let's be honest, the Jets and Giants both are not playing uh, at this point. Uh, I'm still recovering. I'm still recovering from that end of the season. That was absolutely brutal. I'm a Jets fan, and I think the Giants were done dirty on that one. But we're going to get away from that for a minute. We're going to go down to the college ranks where we have the exciting, as always, college football championship game with Ohio State challenging the always supreme dynasty Alabama and from the red shirt podcast Eddie Zinser who will be joining us in just a minute as we're going to connect him in to our show here so that we can get some great tapes and maybe you might be implying to tune in instead of an NBA game even so Eddie Eddie if you're there and you can hear me say hi to our fans well what's going on everybody thanks for having me on the show Thanks, Eddie, for joining us. And look, I'm going to let Daniel get started with the questions here because we really want to drill you over two teams that, you know, we need to know why New Yorkers should care about two teams that clearly don't play anywhere near us geographically. I want to start with a little bit of the background of this game. Do you think that it was fair for Ohio State to be in this, given everything that's happened and that they've only played six games and that... They changed the rules to let them play in the Big Ten Championship. Do you think that was reasonable? I do. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, you know, the whole the whole season about what teams deserve to be in because of COVID. And college football is a weird sport in that, you know, if, if you lose a game, generally speaking, you're, you're out of contention. Um, and Ohio State proved that, you know, they went undefeated. They won almost every game pretty handedly. Um, and they play in one of the top conferences in the nation. We know they have... Uh, the second, I guess we could say, most talented quarterback in the nation. A lot of talent all around, great coach. So I think Ohio State definitely deserves to be in this spot. So prior to the game, I feel like every analyst was predicting that Clemson would overtake Ohio State. But then after watching the game, it looked obvious. There's no way that Clemson could survive Ohio State's pass rush. So why do we think Clemson was the heavy favorite? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of talking heads are on Clemson in that game. Um and for good reason, you know, we know Brett Venables, their defensive coordinator, is the best at what he does. They bring, uh, they bring a lot of pressure, a lot of press coverage, and it's too much for teams to handle a lot of times. But uh, no one talks about the, the revenge spot this was for Ohio State. You know, they lost in the same exact spot last season. Uh, Justin Fields, since that game, probably since before that game, has been hearing that Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback in college football. He will be the number one pick of the draft. So Justin Fields and Ohio State had a big chip on their shoulder, and I think that was not accounted for enough. And they came out ready to play. They knew what they wanted to do. They beat Clemson deep, and uh, they got it done. And look, you mentioned Justin Fields, of course. And, you know, break down for us, for those people who are listening at home and haven't had a chance to watch Fields play on every Saturday, what are his strengths and weaknesses? And 
can his game translate to the NFL level? Because, you know, we all talk about how there are can't-miss prospects, and of course everyone likes to bring up the Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf scenario. How do you make sure that Fields doesn't flounder? You know, here in New York, you've got Sam Donald, who was the number three pick a couple years ago. Clearly there was high hopes, and now there's talk that Justin Fields might replace him. So what are Fields' strengths, weaknesses, and will he translate to the NFL successfully? So Fields, I think, is a great quarterback. He's got the size. He's 6'3". He's about, I think he's about 2'10", 220. So he's got the size. He's got the, athlet- the athleticism. We know, obviously, he's fast. Can really move in the pocket. Um, so those are his strengths. He's got a cannon for an arm. His, his biggest strength, in my opinion, is his ability to move, throw on the run, move the pocket, which Ohio State uses to his benefit all the time. A lot of his weaknesses um, that we've seen, I think I'd point out mostly the Northwestern and the Indiana game, the two teams that played Ohio State the closest, uh, he holds on to the ball pretty long. And a lot of the reason for that is he feels he's so athletic he can make any play. But a lot of times he holds on to the ball too long and he makes some stupid mistakes. And against Bama, you can't do that. You throw two, two picks against Bama, turn the ball over, you're not going to win. And in terms of his NFL potential, um, he's got to play in an offense that's tailored to his abilities. You know, uh, if I'm seeing Justin Fields drop back on their center, it's probably not working out. He's got to come out of the shotgun. You know, if he, if he comes... I hate to say this because if you just take him at number two, it's going to be uh, interesting. But it's all right. I'm going to share this interview with the Jets. Yeah, we need a we need a coach that's going to be running a you know a spread a wide open college style offense. Nothing nothing like we've been running the past few years. I'll say that much for for uh, Justin Fields. So somebody else that has been really interesting, and there has been discussion about him moving toward the pros is Ryan Day. Um. Do you what do you think of him as a coach for Ohio State and what do you think about should an NFL team be looking at him like what are you seeing with that? So Ryan Day is a great coach. Um he he took over as interim head coach originally for Urban Meyer and a lot of times these interim coaches don't uh end up holding over their jobs and he did. So you know off the bat that they loved him there and we he's got a proven track record. I think I believe it's his second year on the job and he's taken him to the playoff both years now the championship. Um, so there's, there's definitely warranted NFL talk there, especially with the idea that Justin Fields could potentially, you know, in some world where Ryan Day got hired to a team that Justin Fields was drafted to, it's an interesting combo. But, um, you know, Tom Brady has an interesting quote, talks about how in someone's first trip to the Super Bowl, the key to the week is getting into the flow and rhythm of the, uh, of the week, you know, the, the media, the events, all the PR surrounding the game. And that's going to be it. Part of it for Ohio State this week, I think. There's a lot of talk about day of the NFL, obviously. There's a lot of talk about Ohio State players to the NFL. And because of COVID, they're not going to have to deal with that. So I think that Ohio State can really block that out and uh, be focused on this game. Hey, Eddie, I'm also asking you this question as a Jets fan who has a one-track mind, and that's college football quarterbacks <laughs> and nothing else. Is Mac Jones an elite quarterback, or is he just does he just have the easiest job in college football? I'm asking myself that question as well. I, it's, it's so hard to say uh, because the things this offense can do is, are just unbelievable. I've never seen an offense like this in my life watching college football. It's like a video game. And, you know, Mac Jones has definitely got the – he's got the body. He's, he's huge. He's got the arm. Uh, he's got he's to come to the right system. So it really depends on the pieces surrounding him, I think. In terms of one of those pieces who's been a huge part uh, of his success this year – uh, Devonta Smith was just named the Heisman Trophy winner, and 
it's rare for a wide receiver to get that honor. Do you think that it was deserved? Do you think that it was reasonable to pick him? Yeah, so Devontae Smith is, I believe, the third receiver to ever win the Heisman. And if I had a vote, he would have gotten my vote. The things he was doing all season were just unbelievable. Um, his ability in special teams, the punt return game, were, were just fantastic. A big help to Bama. Uh, and that's, a, I think, a big area where Bama's going to have a, an advantage against Ohio State special teams because of him. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, you think about the other receivers, he, he could end up being even the second-best receiver on his own team. Jalen Waddle's been out all season. He'll be back for the game, supposedly, so it's interesting. We'll see. And look, Eddie, we we focus so much here on Ohio and on Justin Fields, and we're only just now starting to talk about Alabama on this particular show. Not that anyone in the nation is doing that. In fact, around the nation, it's probably the other way around. Everyone's talking about Alabama, Alabama, Alabama. So for you, you know, Nick Saban seems to, over the last, let's call it, dozen years or so, there's really been no one better than him and the Roll Tide at any point, uh, they've gone, what, five of the last six, something like that. How long is this dynasty going to go on for? Because at some point, and a lot of people already are, people are getting tired of the fact that Bama wins every year. So <laughs> how, how long? Is, and the thing is, they're not an NFL team where they can keep together for six, seven years because they have players constantly going out through the draft. So where is the end, if there is an end in sight, or are they just basically the Patriots of the, the college football world? I think the dynasty ends when Nick Saban decides to hang it up. So if you're, a college, if, you're a, yeah, if you're a high school kid right now, you look at Bama and you see what they've done over the past 10, 12, 15 years, and you say, okay, I can go to Bama. I can play for the best coach in the nation. I can play in the best conference. If I'm an offensive player, I'm going to contend for every award, and I'm going to go to the NFL. So why wouldn't you go to Bama? All right. Well, Daniel here has one question left for you. Walt has one left one question left for you, and then we're going to get to our final question for you, so I hope you're ready for our trio of questions, the way Alabama's got their trio of offensive <laughs> keys. Yeah, yeah, let's see. I want to see what you think the keys are to this Alabama offense and how this will play out in this game. So Bama runs a lot of pre-stamp motion on offense. I noticed that against Notre Dame. They really can move anybody around behind the line of scrimmage and then find that man downfield in space. And a lot of that's done with that RPO. They were running an, a specific RPO against Notre Dame where they would draw the outside linebacker in and have this hole open for a slant, and it just had a bunch of space up the middle. So that's something that's very, very hard to game plan for. So that's really going to be on Ohio State in the film room this week, leading up to the game, seeing what they can do to contain these receivers. Devontae Smith is the best at creating space at the top of his routes maybe that I've, that I've ever seen. So that's really going to be the key for Ohio State to stop them. So do you think the 75 over under will be crushed and this will just be an Alabama offensive shootout? So that's the interesting, uh, you know, if I if I was making a bet, I'm probably taking the over. But, you know, there's definitely a scenario, I think, where Bama could end up running away with this one. Uh, Justin Fields has been battling some nagging injuries. If you saw the last game, he got crushed in the ribs. Um, and he's also got a thumb injury, which can be very, very bad for a quarterback. If he gets, that gets aggravated, he comes out for a few series. Uh, Bama could really take over and uh, put an end to it. But you know what? Bama's been, been gassed. We've seen it in the, in the Florida game, so it's possible. Look, I'm going to hit you right here with that final question, and you've been sort of touching on it right here. Your prediction for this game, and the three of us are then going to give our answers to it as well. So who's winning this, and what's going to be the final score? Is this just straight up or with the spread? Or just straight up? 
Well, uh, my, my heart says one thing, my gut says another. I'm going to go with my gut, and I'm going to say Bama straight up, but I think it's going to be close, honestly. Uh, you know, Ohio State's going to come out trying to make a point, really get that tempo of their offense going, and, and really uh, an up-tempo offense is the way to beat Bama. So I think they keep it close, but Bama wins. What's the score? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say it's going over. I'm going to say it's going to be about 42-35 range. Okay, that's fair. Um, Eddie, hang tight and listen in as uh, Daniel Walt and I give our predictions here as we're going to close out the show with you on air. Eddie, I think you nailed Sounds it. Good. I think you nailed it. I think it, I, I actually literally was thinking the same score. It's it's just too much to keep up with. So forty two thirty five. That's pretty reasonable. By the way, Vegas has the spread as seven and a half. I think Vegas nailed it with. You know, the over-under being about 75 and the spread being about 7.5. So I think 42-35 is a good score. Yeah, I'm going to have yeah, to go. And... Walt, take it, Walt. Yeah, I'm going to have to go 49-31 Alabama. I think Alabama's too hot right now. Devontae Smith and Najee Harris are coming off a ton of awards. They all look healthy and good, and I don't think Ohio State could stop them. Well, I'm going to give the last one here, and I think you guys are all underselling this. I'm doing 55-42 Alabama. Uh, let anyone say that I'm crazy. I just think that this is how offensive a game it's going to be. Again, everyone, we've been talking with Eddie Zinser from the Red Shirt Podcast. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us here on our debut episode of Outside the Studio. Uh, so we're going to now go into our closing Ladies and gentlemen, we literally, that is all the time we have for you today. I know there's been a jam-packed week, so please tune back in next Friday, January 15th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time for more Hot and Cold Tapes. Once again, I'm Matthew Blitner. To my left is co-host Daniel Green, and to his left is special guest co-host Walt Bonet, saying thank you so much for joining us for our first official show. And if you enjoyed our theme song written by Jessica Page Demary, please visit her website, jdcompositions.com, for her full works, and we'll see you next time on Outside the Studio.